Oki, Nagana go, Meko Che, Chestokom Oki, or Dekot Nagotine Siku. Hi, my name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake tribe in Treaty 11. My name is Dekot Nagotine Siku. My people wore rabbit skin, so it's been referred to as the land of the hair people. I'm also a native to Turtle Island. My Dene Nation is a visitor to this area of Pinchotine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot Mokinstis as Michelle Elliott, an English name that has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. Through my father and my daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of uh, the American Revolution, which is a, you know, Indian Act construct and, and all of these things that actually create division and policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights. Uh, Indigenous Two-Spirit or the Indigenous 2S LGBTQ2 plus community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socio-economic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, uh, poor policies, racism, gendered violence, and land, land theft. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share my journey as I walk down my red road. As a Dene woman who has attempted to run after joining harmful colonial parties, spent money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow incarceration, a denial of justice, a denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples. I have work to continue, reports to advocate for, and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I think of all of this today. And I hope we honor the many Indigenous lives lost for this so-called country of Canada. I hope you all see your role in the importance of stopping harm and as a citizen see your role in reconciliation and as a better treaty partner. Pride Month should never be one month. That is, um, it is important to understand that the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on these lands by Christian outsiders. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. It's also important that land acknowledgements have meaning. I encourage all to introduce themselves with their acknowledgement of their ancestors, story, stories of displacement and how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee or other land displacement so we as Indigenous people know how safe you are to be around. If you don't know how to pronounce your local Indigenous nation's name, won't say your pronouns, won't say your story of origin, won't acknowledge stolen lands, acknowledge imposed economic oppression or your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around my community, my, my family and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101 because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves native Calgarians or whatever town you're from show me that you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Jesse Winty's book Unreconciled explains that perfectly as do many Indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that would not just save the planet from climate change created by colonialism, but it would also be part of a healthy treaty relationship, partnership, part of meaningful reconciliation. 
and honoring global initiatives like the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I honor the Blackfoot and the elders as they've been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed US-Canadian border are the Blackfeet, north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations of the Stony Nation, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe. You can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And with that, I'd love to welcome my guest, Angela. Would you like to introduce yourself in your way? Thank you, Magritch. Uh, my name is my English name is Angela Mashford Pringle. Uh, my spirit name is Akijigajik, uh, eagle, eagle cradling spirit. My pronouns are she, her. Uh, I am. Algonquin, Bear Clan from Temiskaming First Nation in Northern Quebec, but I was born and raised here in Takaronto uh, in the Treaty 13 territory, uh, Dish with One Spoon uh, territory, uh, very much uh, a lot of Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe folks who come here. A lot of people know this is Toronto or the Big Smoke because this was the gathering place for all the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee and Métis people from the Ontario, Quebec area. Mm -hmm. uh, I am an assistant professor and associate director of the Wakabanas Bryce Institute for Indigenous Health at the Dalalana School of Public Health. I'm also the Indigenous Health Lead and the program director of the MPH in Indigenous Health. I um, came from the waters of Margaret, who came from the waters of uh, Edna, who came from the waters of Rose, who came through the waters of Juliet. And I wish I could pronounce all of my ancestors after that, but they, when you get past my fifth generation, they all have their Algonquin names and I have not been gifted with my language, so I cannot speak them. Uh, I really wish I could, but I can't. And I want to acknowledge the fact that you were talking about land acknowledgements and I often tell people to think about how they live, they work and they play on these lands and how they are contributing to our environmental degradation and the replenishment that we need to be doing. So for every tree you take down, what are you putting back up? And that we have to stop having humans at the top of a pyramid and we are part of a whole and a circle, meaning that you have to be in kinship relationships with the plants, the animals, the insects, the birds, the fish, the waters, the soil, the rocks, and everything in between all my relations. Oh, yes, I felt that. You know, <laughs> um, I, I was lucky enough to be in a sweat and the elder Hal Eagle Tail said we need to be really grateful every time we take a swig of water we clean ourselves like we have to give more to the water spirits 
for the uh, abundance of water that we misuse and use. And, um, you know, just what you had to say just brought that all together. And I, I wish that people understood when we light that smudge and we say our prayers and we say things that are similar to that, that's what we're talking about. And yet, like I, I have so many, you know, non-Indigenous that don't understand ceremony. They don't understand even treaty is ceremony. Uh, treaty was done. Everything. And uh, yeah. they don't see it as a spiritual covenant. And they don't see living in this land as a spiritual covenant with the land. Well, that's how Dish with One Spoon came about, right? We all have to eat out of the same uh, places, right? So whether you're Indigenous, you're Black, you're purple, you're white, it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are, we all eat the same foods. And so dish with one spoon means that we're all going to share it together. It doesn't mean we're sharing at the same table all the time, but we are sharing from the same table, Mother Earth, where we get our foods from. So we have to start thinking about that and how we're respecting or disrespecting, if you will. Um, you also talked about reconciliation. The fact that we haven't got to the truth tells me that we can't be at reconciliation. So uh, George Manuel said it well in the fourth world. And I it, it's a book. Uh, I think that he said it very well, where he said, we're not at a point where non-Indigenous people understand where we came from or how we got here. Uh, and they can't understand why we hold on to it, um, why we can't let it go. And I think that part of it is you can't let it go when we're watching it happen right now. Uh, really? It happens every day, right? Yeah. Like people aren't thinking about how many communities how many of our First Nations communities don't have water? They're not thinking about how many uh, Indigenous people are living below the poverty line, whether they're on or off reserve. They don't think about that. Um, they don't think about how many of our kin are in uh, incarceration. They don't think about how many of our children have been taken through the child welfare system. They don't understand our pushback on the laws that weren't our laws or our sovereignty. So there's a lot to unpack. And I think that we're not near that truth. We haven't even come close to that truth yet. No. And I, I appreciate you framing it that way because, um, you know, it, I just feel like it's been since, well, 1996 when RCAP came out mm -hmm. and how little Indigenous people know. It, I have to go into therapy for no other reason than the gaslighting that I get from folks when when our our graves spoke from the dead and that was national news and I thought okay so you didn't read it in 1996 you missed the whole volume in 2015 I've mm -hmm. been showing you pictures of the memorial that's at my granny's Indian residential school with the names on it like like how much gaslighting can we endure as people from a society who are committed to misunderstanding. To yeah, and to not learning. I think, okay, so you also talked about ceremony. The other thing is everything, and I, I mean this, everything is ceremony. We talked about a little bit um, from the drinking of water to the taking of food. Smudging is just a specific ceremony, but there's so many other ceremonies that are involved in our everyday lives. People take for granted that you are able to get up in the morning, that you have the mobility to do that. We've, we've made it so that everybody feels like they should be able-bodied. 
Um, we don't talk about people that are othered in any other way or made vulnerable. And that's my phrasing is made vulnerable. I didn't make myself vulnerable as an Indigenous person. The systems made me that way. And so we've got to start thinking about all those gratitudes, that ceremony. Um, we just don't talk about it as ceremony, but our, our ancestors used to. Yeah. When you get to walk outdoors and you get to take a breath of air, that's ceremony. Right. Um, the idea that you can go get fruits, vegetables, moose, caribou, elk, that's ceremony. And those ceremonies are dying because our planet is dying. Yeah. We've allowed too much gases into our air. You know, I, I jokingly say this sort of jokingly. Um, I never gave away the rights over my home so that airplanes could pass it. Who gave that away for me? Yeah, I didn't ask for that. Yeah. I didn't want that. So I think about when I go north to go visit my my cousins who live in northern Quebec, and there's not a plane to be seen in their skies. And how nice it is to be sitting up there and not hear a plane go over my head every 15, 20 minutes, yeah. or hearing um, sirens from ambulances or uh, police cars, or to not even see the police. <laughs> you know, like to be up there, you don't see any of this. So there's there's something to be said about uh, what everyday ceremony is and what we take for granted in our world. And, you know, this from my perspective, from my teachings, and I, again, like you said, I can't talk from other people's perspectives, but my seven grandfather teachings say that I should be uh, respecting, honoring, being brave, telling my truth, uh, loving the world, giving my wisdom. Okay, so how are we going to do that? And you're right, there's a lot of people that still don't have the native 101 or however you want to put it. I work in cultural safety. I've been doing cultural safety for non-Indigenous people for the last three years. I want to now start a project that I've uh, named, uh, it's New Respect, but new respect indigenous cultural safety so it's meant to be given back to our people mm. so that they know how we got from treaties to here yeah because then how can they fight the system if they don't actually know what the systems put in yeah. and even when you're talking about the rcap there's been so many more reports before oh. that that they've they've just put them on a shelf and never worried about the 440 recommendations in the rcap have never been acted upon um, and a few of those became the 94 calls to action. And we still haven't in seven years seen anything actually move, right? We're going into year eight. We've heard universities and colleges say, hey, we're going to take this up, but I haven't seen it happen. No, I haven't seen any of these physician organizations or, or nursing organizations take it up in such a way that we would feel culturally safe within healthcare or within social work or within um the justice system so how can you tell me that we're even at truth when we haven't got there no not at all and i couldn't agree more with you and everything you said i appreciate how you encapsulated that um i've been really struggling with going back to work because i know there's no culturally safe place for me to go so i know me going to work is done out of survival and knowing i'm going to be mistreated and knowing I'm going to face racism, sexism, and ableism. And uh, trying to make peace with that has been very difficult. And it, it's uh, hard watching other people struggle through it. 
and then internalizing it because as you said even our own people don't necessarily know what cultural safety is and for me it's ongoing i'm regularly reading from different um authors on on their perspective on on how to incorporate that and yeah. it's uh, it's so hard to do that especially with unwilling people because I, as you know a lot of the courses that yeah. we give the teachings there are half the room in there that don't want to hear it don't care don't want to be there um you know and and then there's just the disrespect in general from folks who refuse to pay us who agree <laughs> you know yeah, i totally <laughs> understand that piece <laughs> so they expect us to do the work for them and you know there's oh man i could get so started on examples but you know even when i think about cultural safety uh people always tell me they want it and the thing that I was trying to research, not that I didn't think people needed cultural safety, that's not the purpose of what I was doing. I wanted to show that you need to be on the land in order to get true cultural safety. You can do virtual or online courses. That's not going to bring you to that space because I need to strip you vulnerable. I know that sounds horrible, but I got to strip you vulnerable and <laughs> make you sit with us. Uh, you smudge with me, you eat with me, you live with me, you clean with me. And then you're going to get to know me on a level that you ordinarily wouldn't know Indigenous people on, and that changes things. But you see, people who've lived near Indigenous communities often get the stereotypes based on the limited interactions they've had, right? Often they haven't had full interactions. They've had passing by or, you know... For example, you go to a store and somebody's following you around as an Indigenous person, it's because they believe that we're going to steal something because that's the stereotype. Yeah. That doesn't mean that's what we do, but that's what they believe. Yep. You know, so like we have to get them out on the land. You got to strip them down so they're vulnerable and they're actually able to take all of this crap away. So take away the internet, take away your phones, take away the hydro and put them on the land to see how our ancestors taught us because those teachings have come through generation after generation since time immemorial. What they don't understand is they have that too, but they lost it in their pursuit of capitalism, in their pursuit of money and power and wealth. And those three Ps, that's what I call them, the power, the privilege, and the positionality that they hold makes them continue to put those blinders on so they don't have to see our issues. And therefore, they never have to get to our truth. They don't care about our truth because it doesn't make them money. Yeah. And in fact, it would take away their power too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's the worst part. And I, I, I'm so glad we can finally chat. You talk a lot about um, medicine on online and of course we we've connected through social media i am so grateful that we did um what are some key things that you're working on um and i wanted to bring attention to your website as well and and where we follow you on twitter tiktok etc yeah so um my website www.amplabresearch all one word.com so you can see all of the projects i'm working on and the ones about to start up uh, and my Twitter handle is at ARMP71 and TikTok's the same. Um, I think that it's important for people to start to think about health in a more holistic way. So often even Indigenous people haven't been thinking about it spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally. Um, 
and socially, actually, there's while the medicine wheel is four directions, there's a fifth direction that I think it's lost in translation, which is the social aspect of our health, right? Um, COVID should have shown all of us that we need to be socially connected somehow. Uh, and I think that, you know, in the research that I'm doing, I'm doing a project that uh, heard from Indigenous parents, caregivers, and foster parents uh, who've been in touch with child welfare. And, you know, what we're hearing is they still don't want to follow kinship adoption. We're finding out that social work is teaching through a Western lens. So they're not culturally safe right out of the gate, right? Because they're not teaching our way of being. Um, I'm doing a project called Kijibajik, which is Turn It Around, which is for previously incarcerated Indigenous moms and mom figures. So we're trying to figure out, um, you know, what led you there? What could we do preemptively to stop people who are at risk of getting incarcerated? And what do you need when you come out to help you to reunify with your family, which we don't actually know. I have a the extension project, which we call Keep Two. Uh, and now we're going to expand it to men and two-spirited people as well. Because you know what? When you go across Ontario, at least, and possibly the country, there is only one paper written about two-spirited people who've been incar incarcerated, right? And there's very few resources for men as they are leaving the prison system. So how do they get reunified with their families? And that is a huge piece. Those are just some of them. Yeah. Um, I'm also doing cultural safety. Like I said, new respect. I have right now the online version for um, students in the faculties of medicine uh, public health, nursing, and social work at the University of Toronto, but I'm trying to figure out how to expand that and to offer it more widely and broadly. Um, but I want to do one for Indigenous people because the one thing I'm starting to understand is we don't understand ourselves and we don't understand how we got here. Uh, we've incorporated white Christian values into a lot of our communities and I'm not faulting anybody for, for doing that. Um, you know, my parents named me Angela, so I would have a nice Italian name and blend in Toronto, not because that was their first choice, um, but it was so that I would blend and so that I wouldn't end up, you know, growing up, residential schools were still around in Ontario. It was quite possible I could have ended up there or in child welfare. Um, and so there was this big push to make sure that I blended as best I could. I'm fairer skinned. I mean, I don't look that fair skinned when I go back home and I see all my Algonquin cousins, we all look the same. Uh, but, you know, I'm fair skinned, but in Toronto, I could blend in and with an Italian name with dark hair and dark eyes, I looked Italian and nobody questioned it. It wasn't till multiculturalism came about in the 80s that people started asking, so where are you from? And when I'd say Canada, they're no like, where are your ancestors from? Canada. No, like, where are they from? And so th this, there's this Western worldview that we have to be from somewhere else. And when Indigenous people say they're not, um, there's something madly wrong with you because that's not true. Yet we have scientific proof. First of all, we have teachings. We've known this all our lives. Sure. But now we have scientific proof where they found mastodon bones here in at Six Nations. Uh, those are over 15,000 years old. We've been here forever. And, and so how did we get from eating mastodons, <laughs> not the, not the social media app, but the actual being to what, what we know now? Yeah. You know, um, Eagle Tail talked about that in the sweat. And he said that the Buffalo 
you know, they've, they um, are uh, kind of like a, a horn that comes out kind of in a U, but they actually used to be straight and that, um, like we have watched the evolution of animals. We have, our people have, and we, we don't well, talk about that. No, well, it's the same as stories, right? Like uh, when we used to have story times in January, because right now story time, right? Yep. We're supposed to be in deep winter, although I'm looking out at grass, I'm sorry, but where I live, there's no snow and no cold. Um, we're actually in our heat wave. We got up to 14 degrees Celsius yesterday. So um, yeah, I don't know what the heck it's January. I, I, I'm not used to this. Um, anyway, but we had stories that used to tell us that the animals could talk to us and we could talk to them. You know why we've lost that? The three Ps, power, privilege, and positionality. I know you. it may sound crazy, but capitalism didn't start yesterday. It didn't start a hundred years ago. It started over a century, over two centuries, over three, actually it's about a thousand years, right? So we have an entire um, span of time where we lost our ability to be in, in relation to the, the earth and not just us as indigenous people, but globally, yep. right? And when we did that, that's where I'm trying to reconnect. So the, one of my other projects is Mamwe Gidijatuman, which is together we build it. I want to go back to building our traditional structures sure. and people often look at me and go, Oh yeah, that sounds great. What's wrong with you? I'm like, they lasted in the snowstorms. You know, that blizzard that Buffalo had in the West, you guys had it. You could have put a teepee up if it was done correctly and it would have stayed up throughout that. And you would have been able to keep yourself warm with the Buffalo skins. Right. Right. We had wigwams in my territory. We had a summer wigwam and a winter wigwam. And it was based on what the, the uh, materials were. It didn't cost hydro. It didn't take away from the environment. There's so many things, like everything's interconnected. And I think that's the piece that a lot of people forget. That's where it comes back to health. Because we've lost that connection, it changes our health and well-being. So when you ask me the question of how does this all relate to health, all of these little bitty pieces relate back into health. And that's what we're missing. We're missing. And the social aspect of our cultures, and I don't mean just indigenous cultures, actually it's every culture in the world. We had teachings, we had stories, we all have songs. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have some of the nursery rhymes we have, and we wouldn't have some of the music that we have. We've learned from each other. We've collaborated globally somehow all along history. And now we're at a point where we could actually, as Indigenous people, use our traditional ecological knowledge to help build us back up. So I'm not Robin Wall Kimmer. Unfortunately, I wish I had the knowledge she seems to espouse in Braiding Sweetgrass. But I can see what she did in that book. She made it so relatable that anybody that picks up that book can understand our connection to the earth and wants that connection to the earth. And listening to Twitter, Mastodon, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. I'm seeing people across the globe going, hey, I need to get back to the simpler times. You know why we want back to the simpler times? Because it connects you with nature, which brings down your anxiety levels. Sitting at computers and being here for eight to 10 hours a day is not healthy. It's unhealthy. It's unwise. And it doesn't connect you with people. Yeah, we're talking on Zoom and I get connected to you. 
but there's a difference between you and I sitting and having a kitchen table talk where we have some snacks and some drinks and us talking on Zoom. I can have my coffee, you can have your water, but it's still not the same as what we used to do even 40, 50 years ago. So there's a lot to be said with bringing back some of those cultural traditions and it doesn't matter which culture you are. So when you talked about treaty partners, we all have traditions and everybody needs to get to respect and know the land that their ancestors came from. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where you live now. You need to know where you came from in order to be a good treaty partner. Agreed. Oh, love it. Yes. We're on the same page. Thank God. I know so many folks who, you know, when you actually, when you talk about what Indigenous people don't know, and you don't blame them. And honestly, that's who I am. I am that person reconnecting and trying to understand. And I have to read and read and read and read all day long. All I talk about is books. That's all, all I talk about. And I have a book club that's been going on but like this year specifically I have a ton of other books I have to read and I'm I'm kind of making that goal about you know the certain things I want to pull out of each book and and put out there for other folks so that they don't have to read the book they can just hear it from my point of view and that's enough you know um whether it's worth it or not just because like I I have to do this like I have to learn mm -hmm. all of the things I purposely was not taught and it is so frustrating to me because people, uh, you know, they're like, well, why don't you know your language? I'm like, well, let's start by Indian residential school. Let's start, <laughs> you know, like, like they look at me like I'm crazy for not knowing my language. And they're like, well, how native are you? And I'm like, what do you even know about colonialism? Like, let's start there rather mm -hmm. than you asking me how native I am. And then, you know, and then discounting my education that I've taught, self-taught, I've had to self-teach discounting that because it's not put through a white colonial institution you know and and so trying to talk to people about that like i literally was having a conversation with folks today saying okay so a black woman giving with a with a slave background giving anti-racism training is not good enough for you because it's not done through the white colonial lens of an institution like i was trying to unpack what where people were coming from other than they just hated this black woman Right, because I'm like, I, I hope that's not it, because that's like you're just projecting white supremacy and anti-blackness, right? So, and then trying to learn anti-blackness and um, the anti-Asian uh, crap that's out there. Uh, people with disabilities are teaching so much, and a lot of that's neurological. Um, and and trying to not say terms like crazy, that's crazy, because that is ableist. Uh -huh. and trying to relearn my damn language like whole <laughs> while living in poverty you know like I I just I can't wrap my brain around the expectations of white supremacy when we already live in a post-apocalyptic world right mm -hmm. so but that that's the same as biomedicine so if we're talking health biomedicine has made itself superior we had traditional healing and we still have traditional healing and traditional medicines. Let me put rephrase that. Um, but biomedicine doesn't want to see it, doesn't want to hear it, and certainly doesn't want to pay for it. Yeah. The, the only way they want it is co-opting. Yeah. They want to take our knowledge. Hello, for all of you listening, willow bark is an Ojibwe cure for headaches and aches and pains. Do you know what it's translated into? Bear B-A-Y-E-R created something called aspirin out of our willow bark. 
And guess who didn't get paid for that? Well, would that be First Nations? I think it might be. Right. <laughs> it's only one of many, many, many plants and herbs and, and, and things that we know. Yeah. You know, like we didn't know how to do surgeries, but we certainly knew how to use our, our surroundings to help heal people. Yeah. That's why we have spiritual healers. That's why we have physical healers. That's why we have emotional healers. They're all different. Even the ones that are today don't know all of everything. They, they go in their own little realm because you need to have spiritual healers who can heal your spirit to your ancestors because that can make you sick. Okay. I can hear all the non-Indigenous people going, oh, she is out there. No, you know, but it's true when you're, when you're hurting from your spirit, the rest of you hurts when you're hurting emotionally, there's a different kind of healer who would listen to you and be able to tell you what ancestors are saying. That's where we got shake tent from. Mm -hmm. Ah, see, these are things that non-indigenous people, even some indigenous people don't know. Um, the divides between Inuit, Métis and first nations is also a problem right? Oh, because yeah. they've, they're making that divide, yeah. which is further dividing our health. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And agreed. let's all fought for that pot of money. That's not big enough to begin with. Yeah. Purposefully. Like I, and I've, I was talking earlier today about um, houselessness uh, across the country and saying like, this is poor public policy. And there was a native, it was like, well, you can blame your chief and council. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It was the Indian Act that causes that problem. So it's still a colonial rooted issue. So it, it's interesting, yeah. when, like you kind of like did the discounting already. And, and it, it, I see it in our own people when they get mad at chief and council. Like you don't understand that chief and council is an Indian Act colonial construct. Yep. That, that's not our people. It is poor Canadian public policy nationally and then, of course, it's microdose worse for us as Indigenous people under the Indian Act. So it's just poor public policy. Like, yeah. so blaming our chief and council is nothing more than back to that divide you were referring to as well, where it's like, so they've already created the Indian Act to create this colonial construct so that we'd all be fighting between First Nation, Métis, and Inuit, and mm -hmm. that they could use like a, a Métis in the middle of Inuit territory to try to, you know, capitalize on some type of uh, project. And I say capitalize because I mean capitalism, right? <laughs> like it, it, it's yeah. so wild to me that people don't see this and can't, can't understand the gravity of this. And then, you know, and then to blame your chief and council, it's not the chief and council, it's literally the Indian Act. So I, I, I just don't have time and patience for people who are so <laughs> invested in that, in that lateral violence because I'm like, this is all just poor Canadian policy. How can you not yeah. do this? That was brought in from the UK. Which actually it, so it becomes the, the patriarchy too, right? The heteropatriarchy, if you will, because there was this belief that men, white men were superior. And what do, what did white men bring with them from France, from England, from Spain? They brought this centralized government system. If you go back and I've written papers on leaders, indigenous leadership, women always were the say we were the final say yeah that doesn't go very well in today's society when did we okay i don't think kim campbell was an elected official so i'm not even going to count her when did canada have an a woman lead our country 
When has the United States ever had a woman lead their country? When has uh, Cuba, uh, Mexico, Brazil, any of the South American countries had a woman leading their country? And why does it fail? Even England, why does it fail? Because they fail to follow the patriarchy completely and then they get ousted. You're talking about the Indian Act? Yeah, the Indian Act created chief and councils. That's a municipal government style. And what they're trying to do now is enforce it to the point, and they did this in 2010 with the changes in the Indian Act. They're trying to enforce it to a point where um, hereditary chiefs are totally not acknowledged. So Kahana's Manual has been doing her damnedest, okay, knowing that her father was Arthur Manual and her grandfather was um, George Manual. They all have written books. They've all talked about this. Uh, and then I think about, we just got a new king. Yeah. What did he get? Like, how did he get there? Yeah. He's a hereditary king. Yeah. Why don't we have hereditary chiefs then? Well, hmm. you know, it really upsets me because I, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm 40, I'm about to be 46 tomorrow. And I keep thinking about um, all of the people that I'm seeing dying in my life. Um, and that, you know, going through the estate, going through the colonial will, all of those things. And you mm -hmm. don't see, um, you know, even, even white people collect their parents' estate. They have to buy it at, uh, you know, fair market value. And I'm like, I don't remember seeing Prince Charles, be, you know, do this huge wealth transfer in order for him to continue to be king like i i did i miss that was that like <laughs> how did that come to be but so so there's that there's that incredible double standard that i yes. guess commoner has just accepted and i i don't respect it i don't understand it um and the and the bigger thing is this concept of justice obviously you know damn well there are all these we have recommendations we have calls to action we have calls to justice we have reports after reports after reports. They will never change their goddamn legal system or the Westminster parliamentary system. They just won't do it. And uh, so I'm actually going to be launching today or tomorrow, um, you know, to to be with the Indigenous Peoples Commission, part of the Liberal Party of Canada. And I like I, I'm not here to say we're going to make major structural changes. Mm -hmm. I know that we I know we cannot. But I know I can be at the table to say, no, don't do that. <laughs> and don't that's do that. <laughs> first, first, happy birthday. Um, hey, but, <laughs> um, you know, that's what Jody Wilson Roybolt thought she was going to do, right? Um, yeah. And we've had other, so I, I didn't mention, I used to work for the federal government, worked for Health Canada and the Public Health Agency when it became new in 2004. Um, Anyway, uh, the thing is, even with Indigenous people in the system, and that's why I went into government thinking, like, as a public servant, I thought, hey, at least I can voice my opinion, maybe I can make policy change. And you know what, there's so many naysayers within the, the system, the bureaucrats and the politicians, that nothing, it just, it's cogs keep going, and they don't know how to stop the cogs. Well, you guess what, environment's going to stop all of our cogs, because... Yep. It, it's not it's not on your timeline. It's in a whole different timeline. Totally. Um, and, you know, I, I've watched all of these systems at play. I, I do a lot of policy work. Uh, I've actually written about, you know, the historic nature of our policy through, you know, from uh, pre-Confederation to now. And I can tell you 
Um, that's another thing that Indigenous people don't know. So if I started talking to them about non-insured health benefits, I don't think they understand how we got them. And they don't understand that policies that were created in the 50s and 60s are the reason we don't have enough money in those pots today. Because, so for example, um, I haven't written about this yet, but the universities had contracts with Health, health and Welfare Canada at that point uh, to give out biomedical services. They forced biomedicine into First Nations and made sure that our midwifery, our traditional healing, our traditional medicines were considered inferior and couldn't be used. They would call us dirty Indians. They would do anything in their power to make sure that we were getting vaccinated. Um, I'm not saying the vaccines are bad. What I'm saying is they forced it upon us mm -hmm. and made us feel small and degraded to the point where we took what they were giving because we were afraid that we were missing something. Yeah. And our, our teachings tell us that we should always take in all of the knowledge and then make decision, but we didn't have that opportunity. We still don't have that opportunity. And then what happens is you see um, biomedicine is everywhere. And now first nations in particular um, haven't had the opportunity to actually sit down and think about how does traditional healing and medicines play into biomedicine? Like I've my, my PhD research, which happened to be with the black foot uh, just in, just, and standoff. Um, and what I noticed was we don't think we have the, the self-determination or the self-governance over our healthcare systems unless it looks just like the biomedical system. They've done that purposefully. Yeah. That was intentional. <clears throat> the intention was to make it so that we felt small yeah. in the, the, the bigger, grander scheme of, of things, right? And the Indian Act keeps perpetuating it. So the government and the universities have these contracts. Not only do they force biomedicine in, but the second thing that they did that I think is more important and everybody should actually know this and hopefully I get my research written up uh, is they also created unwritten policies. So in Ontario, Moose Factory is in northern on northeastern Ontario on James Bay and people from the Moose Factory zone, so that's Attawapiskat, that's Kasheshwan, that's Moose Factory, and they all don't get flown to like Timmins or Sudbury. No, no, no. And they don't even get flown to Toronto. They get flown to Kingston because there were zones created. So it's the Moose Factory zone and the, the contract was between Queen's University, Faculty of Medicine, and Moose Factory. So instead of putting a, you know, a million, two million dollar bridge over a one mile um, piece of water, they will fly them all the way to Kingston. Hello, non-insured health benefits. Now your transportation dollars, 60% of them are going to flying them out instead of spending two million to give them access to the hospital that's on the mainland. I have How stupid. A, it, it's so stupid. I have um, a lawsuit right now because I was in a car accident, right? So here that's considered a lawsuit. And, uh, you know, what my, my lawyer, their assistant's like, oh, well, can you get a statement from Indian Act about, you know, the expenses that you've had over the last week and or the, or the last year? And I, I just start laughing. I'm like, oh my God, how non-Indigenous think the Indian Affairs <laughs> work. Like, as if it's a, it, it has any accountability any way for us to access it in a good way like christ i'm like no like my daughter's 15 
she doesn't have her Indian status because of the bureaucracy of the Indian affairs. I hear babies cry about their goddamn passport. I'm like, I can get citizenship faster than my daughter can get her status in this country. Don't pretend for me like you've got problems. And so, yeah, you have a health issue. Yeah, you will die in this system before you are properly taken care of, hands down. And, uh, and my stupid sleep apnea machine, because it was registered under my last name, the folks that were holding my, had, they'd been paid even by Indian Affairs. They were like, oh, well, you know, we were wondering why it was so outstanding. I'm like, how many Indian Affairs checks are you getting for Michelle's? <laughs> Like, like explain that to me right like like the bureaucracy of colonialism is like it, it will kill us obviously and I, I say that regularly I got discriminated against for my stupid Narcan uh getting that mm -hmm. and um you know it was it was just assumed uh many different things about it and I'm like why is anti-indigenous um, sexism not part of your understanding of why I'm being denied these services? Like, can we please wrap our heads around this concept? So anyway, I'm getting my Narcan. I just want to make that very clear, but I, I still have to lodge a, a stupid, like, you know, this stack of paperwork against one pharmacist with no guarantee that the Alberta College of Pharmacists will actually change their policies to not be dickwads to indigenous people on, on uh, Narcan. Oh, and you might find this interesting. My, the um, a pharmacist that discriminated against me said he was more worried about the audit than he was about discriminating against me as an Indigenous woman. So I just oh, wanted to say that at you because you, you're in health policy. Obviously, you care about these things. And I'm just like, like the amount of like splitting hairs you know, they want dead yeah. natives so that they can justify land theft and continue the genocide without saying, oh, I'm, I'm genocidal, right? Like, it's insane to me. It, and, and I use that not as an ableist term. Like, this is literally insane. Like, this is so clear in front of you, but you will yes. go over yourself to avoid seeing this truth. All the truth, right? Because they can see it. They've heard it. They know it. But they can't, if they actually acknowledge it, then they're screwed <laughs> that's the easiest way to put it <laughs> they're so complicit and i just blah, just drives me crazy but it's like every day, day yeah that's why I yeah counseling. <laughs> that's why everyday canadians that when they hear you know you see it all the time oh your women are getting uh put into sex trafficking because they're out doing sex trade yeah because they're living in poverty they're living below nineteen thousand dollars a year i'd like to see another canadian do that right well you get free housing no you don't i don't know a res where you get free housing that i've ever heard of including my own you have to buy your house you, you know what i'm property. gonna put this like this is public that's why i'm gonna say this but there there's a uh chief and uh sorry an election happening at uh, Bagani right now and one of the folks was not allowed to run because she was um behind in her rent when it came to uh being on reserve and I'm like that was your disqualifying reason hey like there's so many like don't get me wrong I respect those who run for chief and council but I think it is the most like inadequate piece of governance it's not governance it's absolutely imposable mm -hmm. shit and and so when people run for it they can't even run for it and and i care about people running for government like i care about that i ran myself i want yeah. indigenous people at these tables so that they can say no 
you know, like, honestly, that that's, that's what I want people there for. And, and people, they don't, you know, and then you see Jody and what she went through, like, we're, we're asking Indigenous people to be in unsafe mm -hmm. environments with unsafe governance, like everything is wrong. So Justin Trudeau is actually a prime example of beads and feathers. And I'm going to explain what I mean. He, when he was elected the first time, not only got indigenous folks as ministers, but he had a he had drummers and singers and dancers come to usher him in. If that wasn't performative, I don't know what the hell is. I'm sorry, but you know the Pope came, and uh, you know my personal opinion was there's no headdress to that Pope, and so that's a problem. And yet we've asked the Pope for apology, but we've never asked the monarchy for our money that they stole from us from stealing our land what like we could go on for hours i'm sure but I like no but in, and it's all interconnected and how canadians can't see it i don't understand but just so you know like a lot of the folks that listen to me so i'm going to be real about myself this year and i'm going to put out real media kits etc and half of my viewers are in on in Ontario and half are in Alberta. And for a country who claims that they care about reconciliation, I actually do have a lot of folks that listen. So it is important that you're saying these things and how they all kind of interconnect because I'm sad that the Canadian um, education system has failed our people, not our yeah. people, but like all people so poorly. So. Yeah, well, the Canadian, well, we could get started on that. I also did a, a master's in education, okay? So I'm not just public health. Um, the Canadian education system for the last 30 years has failed everybody. Right. They have not taught you how to be a good human being. They've taught you to now label yourself and make you intersectional, which is causing even more problems. I'm not saying you shouldn't have your own pronouns or you can't choose your gender. That's not what I'm getting at, but you focus so much on that and you focus so much on um, social issues that you forgot to focus on teaching them skills. So they can't, they don't know time tables. They don't know the provinces. They don't know the people that live in our country or how they got here. Ask uh, somebody under the age of 30 about the Canadian railway and, and what they know about Chinese uh, immigrants who were forced to live in internment camps in World War II. They don't know anything about that. They don't know that the city of Kitchener here in Ontario used to be Berlin and that we had to change the name because it was Berlin, right? Like, I know these sound like stupid things, but the, nobody under 30 knows this because they're not teaching it anymore. They're too focused on things that aren't going to help them to actually get to know other people in our country. You know, you know I've spent time to, to understand Ukrainians coming to Canada and Syrians coming to Canada and Somalians, because that happened back in the 90s, right? You have to understand why they're coming here. But I don't think they're doing that in schools now. And so the the demise is that we're doomed to repeat our history because we don't know it. Yeah, agreed. Um, actually, we have a real problem out here in Calgary because we bring in all these new immigrants and then we don't have cultural safety training, whether mm -hmm. it's like health, education, uh, justice and then they shoot black people and indigenous people right left and center killing us and nobody cares because white supremacy is so embedded here that everybody's like whew one less indian and then i get the land right like the, like there's no accountability right um 
so I, yeah, I really struggle, really struggle with how to even have conversations with people that are so committed to not even understanding, right? Like I just did my first block on that Mastodon because it was some fellow from UK that's like, uh, what country are we talking about? And I'm like, mm -hmm. you can't understand Canadian <clears throat> as a hashtag. You don't follow me. You're only here as a troll. Like it, I'm just so tired of this. Like all of these paid trolls, I just get to be total insensitive boobs. Yeah. And, and it's like, you're not helping anybody. And it, this guy from the UK has a responsibility, frankly, because he, like in the, in the UK, they are so proud of being the Commonwealth. And they see uh, Canada as like one of their babies. That they, like they literally infantile us, right? I've been very fortunate over the last three years. I've been teaching, uh, unfortunately it's online, but at least it's something to global public health students at Imperial College every November. And it's the first time, first, first of all, for me, every year, it's actually traumatizing because I'm the other. I've never been othered because in Canada, I am part of a group. But when I'm talking to people in another country, I'm othering myself within our country. Yeah. How's that mean? Um, but I had a student. So I told everybody they should go make a tree friend after the class. I want you to go out, put your hand on a tree, get to know it, talk to it. Yeah, I know it may make you look, you know, a little out of place and people might say something, but I think you need to do it. That student wrote in their evaluation that there was something wrong with me that I couldn't use Western science to explain Indigenous health. I've been a professor for five years. I'm pretty sure I know how to teach. I teach it to my Canadian students. So to hear that from a student there, they, first of all, they, they apologized to me. They were appalled that a student ever wrote that on their course evaluations. Um, but it makes me think about other countries like Germany and Germany and Ireland both have uh, statues that are dedicated to Indigenous people in Canada because we helped them when they got here, right? And so I have to go, wait a second, what happened? Cause you're still here too right so like why aren't you helping our fight um and not that i ever want to play oppression olympics but you know i see it happening every day when you hear anti-black racism and it gets more airtime than our indigenous anti-indigenous racism i'm not it's trying to play oppression yeah i'm not trying to play oppression olympics i'm just saying i can see it Yep. And then I go, okay, how can I build upon their successes? Because I know that they've had success getting their word out there. And it doesn't work because we are still below the bottom rung. Um, and that's North American wide. If you go down to the United States, they don't even know who American Indians are. They are like past tense, even though they know there's still some left. I've been trying to do work with American uh, Indian health policy. And people are saying, but they don't even know we're here because they displaced us also the West. So they don't even know we're here. So, you know, Mamwe get a tomb. And part of that was building our traditional structures for people that were experiencing homelessness or houselessness. Um, didn't mean you had to be indigenous, just anybody that wanted uh, secure temporary housing. Um, and then I would have medical and social services come to them instead of them having to go racing around cities to get all of these services. That was the intention so that we can help them get up and off their feet. You know, like it's usually something that's caused them to be homeless or houseless. And, you know, 
I had it all arranged in Toronto, but the city of Toronto didn't want to do this because they didn't want to let me use a park. They're like, no, because then we have to do that for everybody that wants to use a park. I'm like, are you? They're in the homeless people in Toronto are in parks. Yeah. Otherwise, they're underneath an, uh, our highway, the gardener, yeah. and their tents are going up in flames because they're trying to heat them. I have a perfect solution, but you don't want to hear it. Well, you hear it, but then you go, oh, I, you can't do that. Who's going to manage it? Who's going to decide who goes in it? Nobody, because our communities don't work that way. Yeah. Well, then you can't do it with the city of Toronto because we have to manage it. We have to have a manager. That is the epitome of white, heteropatriarchal, capitalist supremacy. Yep. I can't explain it better than that. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. So like, and, and I think that's the irony. Like I tell people all the time, it's not from a lack of us not coming to the table with solutions. We do all the time. Here's a great example of it again. And yet they just won't work with us. They, they can't. I can't stand the idea that we might have a better idea than they do, I think is really what it comes down to. And they'd rather see everybody die than to see people saved. Because at the end of the day, there's only four years until the next election. Mm -hmm. And that's how they work. Yeah. Actually, it's three years, right? By the time they're elected, it's three years to win an election there. Right. So always, it's always three-year cycles. Well, guess what? The environment is not a three-year cycle. Yeah. Our lives are not three-year cycles. Right. And we need to be thinking more long-term solutions that go across party lines. So whether you're talking in the United States or Canada, we cannot be thinking about, you know, red and blue, which is both countries do it, even though we in Canada have more than two parties. Um, we still do these red and blue fights and, uh, you know, it's not helpful. It's not getting us anywhere. It has made us spin our wheels across the country and in our provinces and territories. And it's not going to get us to a point where everybody's um, going to still be alive. I'll be honest, we're going to be the mastodons. We're going to be the ones extinct. And one of my elders, Clay Shirt, said, you know, everything out there can survive without us as humans, but we can't survive with even one of those things gone. Right? Like, yeah. that's what I can't wrap my head around. Like, how, <laughs> how can people not see that? How can you not see you need water, you need food? And now those things are going away because of what we've chosen as a capitalist society. So how, how can they not see it, right? I, I, and, I, uh, and, and that's part of the reason why they're here even. It's because they came to a better country for better opportunities. Well, if those opportunities are starting to dwindle, what, like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? But what is an opportunity to one person is not an opportunity to an, the next, right? Right. Like, so the other thing is like, I think about the, so the greater Toronto area, oh, what a joke. So 15 million Canadians live in what we call the golden horseshoe, which takes you from Oshawa on the Eastern side, all the way down to Niagara Falls on the, on the Western side. Um, and Toronto has about 3 million and the rest are encapsulated within 50 kilometers of the lake okay so if you just go 50 kilometers up and go around that big golden horseshoe there's 15 million half of our country lives right here and they're complaining about the fact that it's too expensive to live in toronto oh my god think about it we don't okay we have the most arable land in all of canada right here because we're at the great lakes 
right? This is where the, the ice shield melted away and we had this beautiful fertile land. And what did they do? They put condos on it. Yeah. They put highways on it. And they're about to put another one that none of us want, but our premier wants. The point being, we took away our own sources of opportunity. We as Canadians, we as Ontarians, we, it doesn't matter where you are. Sure. Um, we as Torontonians, whatever way you want to look at it, right? Sure. Um, the, the point is, there was another way. How about we would have moved some of the jobs out of Toronto? Mm. Why couldn't a job be in Thunder Bay right. or Kenora or I don't know, the Paw or uh, Prince Albert? Like what, what physically makes you have to stay in Toronto? I know. Well, it's jobs or education. So why can't we have, we have the technology now. Why aren't we using it? Then I looked when I was out in Alberta and I saw all those wonderful wind um, mills or whatever the heck you guys call them yeah. uh, out. They take over half of the scenery and they're supposed to help us churn out these wonderful uh, energy sources. They're also forcing all three of the big uh automakers gm chrysler and ford to go to only electric vehicles by 2024 i don't know what's happening in alberta but in ontario our hydro rates are going up incrementally every month so that by the time we have to have evs uh it's going to cost you too much to actually have one and we don't have enough charging stations so the farthest you can go is barry which is only like 200 kilometers away. <laughs> There's not a charging station for you to get to the northern part of Ontario. I don't know how this is going to work. Yeah. But in the reverse, you've got tar sands in Alberta. We didn't need those trailing ponds. We didn't need those tar sands. We didn't need to do what they did. They did it for sheer money, power and money. Yeah. And then I think about the Keystone or the XL pipeline, if you're in the States. What just happened in Kansas? Just busted. Yep right into a river yep okay well you're trying to tell me you're going to put a, a pipeline across the Mackenzie. yep you don't think that's going to kill absolutely everything right of course it is well that's what that's actually is my territory and and there's actually good books about you know uh at the time the dna kind of pushing back on that and stopping a lot of that development but that said like our, our caribou uh, numbers have completely dwindled. The uh, Satu Dene dog is gone. Um, you know, so it's uh, like, I, I think as a displaced Dene, where I should be, where I'm not, where I am. And I think about all of the uh, development that has caused poison water mm -hmm. too. Uh, they just said that they were going to actually clean the water that the great mine um, created in, in Yellowknife, which is good, but you know, the, the whole point is, is that I am not where I'm supposed to be because of Indian residential schools, because yep. of poisoning in Yellowknife and opportunities in Calgary. That's why I'm here. That's why I was born here. Right. And I was born here because my mom couldn't stay in the North because well, opportunities were one thing. Yeah. But the racism in and around North Bay, which is where she kind of grew up, was so inherently bad. And the child welfare system was scooping people up there. Yeah. So she thought if she moved to a big city, I'd blend. Yeah. Right. So she maybe it, she it's not. Right. And, and that's the shitty part. Like, uh, you know, and, and, and that's the racism today where we look at our doctors, we look at our nurses, we look at our 
uh, police officers, we look at social workers, we look at teachers with that, oh my God, they're public servants, they're such good people, when they're <laughs> literally the racists that are, you know, calling this child, yeah, but killing us, all that. I think part of that problem, yeah, and this is because I did a that Indigenous Child Welfare Study, um, part of that problem is because when they go to get their degree in social work, or, you know, child and youth worker or whatever it's all based on western world views and values right it's not based on that's why we have the child welfare system we have today because even though you and i as indigenous people could go get that degree it's still based in western values that you have to have a um you know a bedroom for each of your children you've got to have a full pantry they have to be clean they have to be wearing clothes they can't be hanging out with your best friend who you call your sister because yep. they don't see kinship relationships the same way we do. So now we're going to take your damn kids. Right. I hear you. I know you and I could keep talking. So <laughs> I'm going to plug your website one more time for folks who are interested. It's www.amplabreseach.com. So how do you say that? Ambler? No, amp. AMP, so my my initials, Angela Mashford Pringle, AMP Lab. So it's my lab, research.com. That makes awesome sense. And we can find you at ARMP71 on Twitter. And I have been so blessed to be online friends with you. And I've been so blessed to have you on my podcast today. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And anytime you have anything, thanks algorithms, probably won't show me. I'll happily <laughs> reshow talk about it on the podcast because i've just found that's the only way my message can really get out is via a podcast so i'm so grateful to talk to you angela thank you for coming on today she mcguish for having me thank you so much awesome is there anything else you'd like to share no i think that's it awesome i have these uh resources that I always give at the end of all of my uh, podcasts. So don't hesitate to uh, chime in if you hear some ones that you'd like to add to, because I am definitely open to that. So so for folks who listen to my show, you know, I have an Indigenous book club every month on the second Monday. Um, so I've, on the next one is going to be on chapters nine and 10 of the National Inquiry. We'd love to have you no matter where you are and anywhere, actually, as long as you have access to Zoom, you can come uh, locally. Reconciliation creates action. You need action. So y'all pretending like you're listening is enough. You're wrong. You need to be doing work. You need to be educating your families. You need to be doing that stuff out there. So join a local reconciliation group that is in your area doing actual work, uh, focusing on policy, all these things that need to be done. Locally, we have a reconciliation action group here in Calgary. Please join it if you're local. Go ahead, Angela. I was going to say there's also, if you go to www.phesc.ca, so it's FESC, uh, you will find that this website is health equity work for public health professionals, which means even though you're not public health, you can go in there and take a look at resources. I did all of the Indigenous content, and there's stuff that's for differently abled. There's stuff for two-spirited LGBTQ please, by all means, go to those things because it will help you. And spend some time doing self-reflection every day. Think about how you're complicit in not being a good treaty partner. That was my other two cents. Awesome. Thank you. 
I am proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety training and cultural first aid in all of them to try to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities, and LGBTQ2 to speak. You can go to here. Uh, oh, sorry, here to help.bc.ca. Uh, what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it? Authors Cheryl Ward, uh, Chelsea Branch, Alicia Fritkin have created that. Those are cultural action tools, so please support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation and settler understandings. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat them here. Um, internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized folks experience by the structure of racism. You can go to racialequitytools.org. Uh, Donna Bevins has uh, what is internalized racism PDF and, and many other resources for folks who are interested. Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Committee. So if you go to AFSC.org or just Google uh, bystander intervention, you can learn these tools. Um, Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas and reports, commissions, public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize marginalized with their budget with gender equity plus, if they are cutting violence prevention programs and services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote for that party or person negatively impacts so many people. Demand they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports of child welfare reform, violence prevention programs, 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Provincially here in Alberta, the Kenny government created 113 pathways to justice, so all you blue voters should be holding your blue MLAs to account on it. Follow the new Premier's Council on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls' Work. Municipally, we have the White Goose Flying Report. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs. Um, you have calls to action, all of you. There's not one single aspect sector of life in Canada that doesn't deserve time, effort, and work here. Um, Google articles on how non-Indigenous people can become allies. There's plenty of them now. Um, if you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today and want to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 855-242-3310. It is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They also, if you go to hopeforwellness.ca, they have a little text box. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, you can call 844-413-6649. And if you are non-Indigenous, there are always non-Indigenous distress center lines in your area working, probably a functioning 211. Uh, you can also call 833-456-4566. If you're in Alberta, there's the 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta at ssisa.ca. And if you are experiencing any racism in uh, Calgary, you can also text at eight, sorry, 587-507-3838. 
Uh, the following are two SLGBTQ2 plus crisis supports that are available in most areas. I want to thank the Trevor Project for the great work that they do. You can go to lifevoice.ca for oodles of crisis support lines. Uh, the Trans Lifeline in Canada is 877-330-6366. And the Trevor Youth Project is 866-844-7386. Uh, the opioid crisis, the drug poisoning problem is, is a national issue, but it is overburdening our system. If you or someone you know is using substances, please do not use alone. If you are using alone, there's two apps you can use, the Brave app or the Doors app, and the National Overdose Response Service at 888-688-NORS for support. Uh, violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. This is self-care, how I take my power back. This is why I started the podcast, to speak freely without interruption, tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous women's opinions, but sure want to tell us theirs, even if they know nothing about Indigenous peoples, colonialism, the constant surveillance of our people, our protests, our vigils, our, and our rights. I and many others share daily on microaggressions, so it's unacceptable to say them anymore. Learn about being trauma-informed. People like me are dealing with internalized racism and gatekeeping. Um, so learn about internalized racism and internal and external racism is an everyday reality for folks like me, Indigenous peoples, folks with disabilities, LGBTQ2+, BIPOC, and others. Masi Cho to my ancestors, to my granny and my mom, of what strength looks like through your example, to my dad's side for teaching me a lot about colonialism. Um, I want to say I am a proud Calgarian, and it's thanks to so many people teaching me what is good about this area, but specifically the Blackfoot. Uh, thank you, Darcy, uh, my husband, big Buffalo rock man for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child, he has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, Thunderpipe Necklace Woman, uh, we are blessed to learn from you daily. We are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel. You can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts on and pin posts on social media. And I want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or yeah, be in my dish. Thank you so much for coming, Angela. Thank you.